Institutions from the perspective of Shanghai. Um, we're delighted to collaborate once again with the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai uh, for this program. I believe this is the third or fourth time in a row that we've done this. Uh, AmCham Shanghai visits Washington uh, every fall uh, when the weather is nice uh, and uh, things are quiet uh, to, to talk to uh, the policy community about how things are in Shanghai and how they hope thing, things are in Washington. Uh, I was just in Shanghai uh, a couple weeks ago and met with uh, some of the colleagues who you're going to hear from today. And uh, they have a very important story to share with you about uh, the perspective of, of American companies and American industry in China. Not just companies that are on the ground, but in the overall uh, relationship. Uh, today's program uh, follows the practices of the past. Um, we're first going to hear from the president of AmCham Shanghai, who will present the findings from their most recent business climate survey that, anal that looks at the experiences, real life experiences of American companies in Shanghai. Uh, and you'll be able to see how their most recent experiences compare to years past. Uh, and then we're going to have a panel of three uh, uh, additional members of AmCham Shanghai's uh, Board of Governors who are in different industries and can talk about the experiences of their companies and those that they interact with. Uh, and then we will have an uh, open panel discussion and invite all of you to uh, contribute uh, to that dialogue. Um, we're joined online with lots of folks, so uh, I think even though uh, it's a sunny day and people want to be outside in the park. Uh, it's wonderful that everyone uh, is here uh, wherever you are. Let me introduce uh, our first speaker, uh, Kerr Gibbs, who is the president of AmCham Shanghai. He just started this year, a quiet time to take over the reins of AmCham Shanghai. Uh, and actually, uh, Kerr is, is well suited uh, for uh, taking leadership of AmCham this year. He's been involved with AmCham uh, for many years. Uh, he first came to China as a student in 1985, so it's now 34 years of his life involved uh, with China. Uh, he's been involved in a variety of positions in different companies uh, at Apple, Disney, and other technology and media firms, uh, as well as at HSBC and in the banking and investment sector, so he has a wide variety of expertise uh, he holds a bachelor's degree in economics from UCLA and an MBA from UC Berkeley, and I think he's going to get a firefighter's degree after serving as head of AmCham Shanghai. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, he's done an excellent job. So please join me welcoming Kurt Gibbs. Great. Thank you very much, Scott, for that, for that introduction. Yeah, my eyebrows are starting to grow back after being singed. Um, yeah, it is, it is, in fact, um, you know, lovely climate here uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, political climate, not quite so much. Um, the, so thank you all for, for being here, and, and thank you, Scott, and to, to CSIS for, for hosting us. And, um, and thank you all for being here and participating in this conversation. It's, it's very helpful for, for us to, to come here and listen and understand kind of what's going on here inside the belt, Beltway. Um, um, also, our delegation 
You'll have to forgive us um, if, if our delegation looks a little bit dazed and confused. Um, we're, we're, we're battling jet lag, uh, but also we've, we're, we're, we're recovering from about two and a half days of, of meetings with the administration and on the Hill. Uh, so that's got um, challenges of, of, of its own. Um, so good, so what I thought I would do is uh, start with um, a discussion about our survey results as a way of kind of teeing up the conversation and, and, and um, having our panelists kind of respond to, to, to and, and offer an interpretation of, of, of some of the data. Um, first, let's see, how do I do this, Scott? Um, let's see, just which one is the advance? This, that one there? Ah, oh, great, yeah, our, our delegation. You can see the confused looks. Okay, um, quick introduction of, of AmCham Shanghai. Um, with 3,000 members, we are probably one of the larger um, AmChams outside the United States. Uh, we represent 1,500 companies. Uh, fairly long history in, um, in, in Shanghai. We were founded in 1915, so we have quite a bit of history there. Um, fairly large, um, we do about 400 events annually, and I put up this, this slide here to talk about content, connectivity, community, these are the three C's. This is fundamentally what American Chamber is, is about, is, is generating content, um, uh, knowledge, and, and, and then sharing that content and experiences, and that's what we mean by community. We're all a, a, a large 3,000 members community that all have a bit of a stake in each other's success. Connectivity, of course, what we refer to there is, it's really connectivity to, to local government. Um, and we do see local government as, as very much partners in our success. And we can talk about that more in, um, in the context of the panel. Um, AmCham, um, we are, AmCham Shanghai is actually one of four independent um, AmChams within mainland China. Um, obviously, we have one in, in Beijing one in Shanghai, one Chengdu, and, and one in Guangzhou. That's actually very important because as we all know, um, China is very diverse and it looks different from different angles. And so to have the four AmCham's, we're all very cooperative, but we do see things differently from a different angle. AmCham in Beijing, obviously being in the capital itself, they have more access to, to government decision makers and so they have a, a certain view. Um, from Shanghai, we are much more the commercial center, uh, so we, we would have a, a, a view that's influenced by that. Couple of, couple of other notes. Um, getting into the survey itself and some of our methodology, um, up at the left you'll see 333 companies responded. Um, you should compare that to the 1,500 um, number that I showed in the last slide about, that's 1,500 companies, so we, we insist only one person can respond per company. Also, some of you have been watching this from, from year to year, and that's an important element of the, of the survey is to have some continuity, and you'll notice a drop in, in that number. I think we had last year about 430-some. And the instant question for, for the, 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 the data-driven people out there is, oh, you must have lost 25% of your membership, right? Uh, no, that's, that's not the right way to interpret that data. Uh, frankly speaking, the, that number is driven mostly by um, our willingness to harass our members for, for, 
for um, taking the time to fill out the survey. It's a, it's a, it takes a long time. It's a big survey, over 50 questions. It takes a long time. And so we do harass our members until we get a, a decent number of respondents. Second, um, we, we actually put out this survey a little bit later in the year so that it would coincide with this trip. So we literally put out this survey in the month of July which is traditionally a downtime in, in Shanghai, especially among the foreign, foreign companies. And so that's, that's much more the explanation there. Um, and, and no, our, our, our membership has not dropped. Actually, we're fairly steady. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, about companies leaving China, redirecting investments, and, and whatnot. Top right, let's talk about this. Um, who are our members? Um, our core members are still the large multinationals. So you see 24% have, have annual revenues of over $5 billion. And I mention this because um, it's important to, to, as you look at different surveys, um, and again, I'm gonna point um, specifically to another one of our, our, our partners is, is US-China Business Council. They produce excellent uh, data and information. Um, They've recently put out a survey. We've looked at it, and the surveys are, are roughly consistent, but, but not exactly the same. And one of the reasons why is our memberships are very different. So 24% are the large companies. We have a mix of, of SMEs and, and, and uh, uh, you know, the smaller businesses, uh, consulting firms, things like that, USCBC. As, as some of you would know, very different organization. It's only large companies. So this, the number for them would be actually almost 100% would be over $5 billion. So that's an important thing to, to note as you look at the different competing surveys out there in the market. Doesn't mean any of them are wrong. It just means they, they've pulled different things from, from a different, different set of data. Um, fairly mature uh, population, 80% uh, of our, the companies that we surveyed have been in, in China for a while. And, um, uh, so that's an important thing to note. So let's jump into some of the data. Um, I'm going to start with actually the least exciting slide, and we're going to sort of a little bit of rolling thunder here, because I know we're all here to talk about one thing, which is the tariffs and the trade war. So I get that. I get that. But let's, let's start with a couple of um, less exciting slides. The, the, the most boring thing is about profitability. So watch the gray line there. Very consistent. So we are not seeing companies dropping off a cliff. We're not seeing the economy drop off a cliff. Our companies have been consistently fairly profitable. So 77% report that they are profitable or extremely profitable in the China market. 71% um, have, have reported that they have revenue increase um, from, from one year to the next. So that's an important point. Um, the 46% operating margin, that looks like a big drop I would provide the context for that. So again, that's fewer companies are reporting an increase in their operating margin. But frankly, when you look at what's going on in the China market, and we can have more discussion about that, I mean, we're, seeing, we're clearly seeing GDP growth slowing. We're seeing domestic competition increasing. We're seeing costs, labor costs increasing. So frankly, in that environment, if we didn't see some kind of dip, that would be extraordinary. So that'd be the explanation here. So I would say overall profitability, not much new. Thrilling. Let's talk about revenue. Um, fairly similar situation there. Um, 
some negative pressure, but overall still positive on 2018. Um, the, the big news here is revenue expectations going forward, and that's where we saw the drop. We actually saw a 30-point drop in the number of companies that were expecting to have revenue growth next year versus this year. So that's really the, the, the story there. Um, a, a second data point that came out of this is the direct impact of the tariffs. So 50% of our membership said yes, they have a direct negative impact on the revenue line as a result of the trade war. So that's the significant point out of this. Investment. Um, here, important to note, the long-term trend is we have been seeing a steady decrease in, a decrease in the investment increase, right? So, so um, a, a steady decrease in investment since 2012, okay? So, so some drop would actually be expected. Here we're seeing about a seven-point decline. Um, what did, our, what did our, uh, our members say is the reason? Clearly, um, it's, it's really both. It's, it's, it's definitely the, um, the, the, the trade tensions, but also uh, GDP, GDP growth. Um, another point on, on optimism, um, on investment and the relationship to the optimism level, that's where we saw a big drop. So typically, AmCham Shanghai has surveyed our members. We typically see about 80 to 90% respondents say they are optimistic or very optimistic about the future in China. That we saw a 20-point drop in, 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 that, in that number. Um, looking at investment, um, our interpretation on this in terms of the reduction of investment and, and the trade war, and especially in supply chains, we are seeing a little bit of both of, of um, the trade war pushing investment in both directions. In other words, the, the most obvious one is in the supply chain, are companies investing in new factories to, to build textiles in China in order to export back to the United States? No, obviously not. So that is gonna be investment that's in decline. Those investments are now going to Southeast Asia, uh, Bangladesh, and Vietnam. There is some degree of, of investment coming in as a result of the trade war where, and this is pro providing a bit of tailwind behind the overall strategy of this so-called in China for China strategy where we're producing uh, goods and services within the China market for the China market. The trade war has accelerated that. So you are seeing some investment coming into China as a result of that. Another slide on investment um, and redirection of investment. Um, yes, this, the, the, what we're asking our, our members is of the investment number that you had planned for China, to what extent are you redirecting that elsewhere? And this is a fairly big, big jump here is uh, uh, about one quarter of our respondents in the report said, yes, they are redirecting uh, investment out of China. Um, and that's, that's larger than it's, than it's ever been. I do wanna say a note about this though. Um, that redirection, again, we see it mostly around the supply chain. 
Um, it would be a mistake, and again, we've, we've just come from two and a half days of meetings on the Hill, and everybody wants to know if American companies are abandoning the China market, are we running out of that market in droves? The answer is no. Um, and and um, I mean, the president is you know, famous for, he, he came out with a number, he said 13% of American companies are leaving, leaving China. We have no idea where that number came from. Uh, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> frankly, I don't know of, of, of even one. Again, if you separate out the discussion about supply chain versus uh, companies that are in China for China, I, I, I honestly don't, I, I know a, a fair number of companies who are adjusting their supply chains, moving either you know, parts of, a, of supply chains out of China, and, and frankly, that's been happening for quite a long time. Um, especially, you know, you can look at the supply chains in almost two different buckets. You know, there's the sort of low-end supply chain, you know, in terms of uh, textiles, uh, apparel, shoes. I mean, that trend has actually been happening for quite a long time. I mean, labor costs have been going up in China, so that's something we've, we've been watching. Um, what's new is around some of the more sophisticated areas in the supply chain is, you know, the electronics. Um, that's much more difficult to, to, to move. Um, China is, um, is extremely uh, developed uh, around the electronics supply chain, the ecosystem, very sophisticated. Um, and also, there, there's capacity issues as far as moving those parts of the supply chain out of China. That's, that's going to take years. Um, but again, the in China for China, companies abandoning China as a market, not seeing it. Business outlook, again, this is where we have seen, um, traditionally, our numbers have been very high, 80 to 90% um, optimism levels, and this dropped, uh, dropped by 20 points on the optimism side, and then the, the, the red part is the how many of our members are, are um, pessimistic, and that went up by 14 points. So this is a, a, a very important um, part of the data. Now, the slide you've been waiting for, um, trade war. Um, again, it's it certainly made an impact. It's got our attention. Companies are having to adjust uh, to the trade war. But again, nobody's falling off a cliff. Um, typically, our members, um, again, the in China for China, um, some percentage of inputs are imported, and there are some degrees of products going back and forth, but for the most part, our members aren't as directly affected by it, but everybody is, everybody, 100% of our members are, are affected by the tone um, and the, the general spirit in the relationship and very concerned about that. Specifically looking at kind of what, what we think about, about the trade war, um, We've got this, it's split up into sort of two, two sides. One is a direct question, on the right here, we see a direct question is, do you support the use of tariffs? And again, we've got 2018 compared to 2019. We asked the exact same question in the same way last year so that we could have a baseline. So the, the interesting part is, is well, down at the, at the bottom, we said how many people are unsure, right? So last year it was 23% were unsure. People have now made up their minds. So those folks um, have made up their minds, so much fewer number um, are unsure, and most of them are going into the no category. So you see 75% of our members say the tariffs specifically are not the right approach. 
So then on the left, you, you ask, well, you know, what is the right approach? Um, and, and what do you recommend? And again, that's part, been part of the conversation that we've been having the last two and a half days on the Hill. Um, most of our members favor um, uh, more dialogue, um, but especially multilateral pressure. And here's the issue is many of our companies, we feel like with the tariffs, the way they're being applied by doing this in a bilateral way versus multilateral way, we feel like we're filling up a leaky bucket. Because as long as the Japanese companies and the European companies don't face the same tariff situation, our customers are just simply transferring to, to European and Japanese companies. And as much as we'd like to think um, our products are unique and our technology is superior, the fact is people have choice. And if they're faced with a 25% um, increase on our products, but Europeans um, and Japanese haven't, they're going to go. They're going to go to those competitors. So that's the issue around um, multi. That's why our members are saying multilateral pressure is the way to go. Um, and again, we've been having that that conversation in the last couple of days. Um, smaller numbers, um, international dispute mechanisms. A lot of a lot of. Uh, skepticism around WTO, I think that won't be surprising to people. Um, way down at the bottom, how many people think that, that again, tariffs uh, would be the best way to resolve this? 3%. Let's see. Challenges. Um, what are the, the, the things that, um, that our members think are the most difficult, it's all macro. Again, the top two, US-China tensions and economic slowdown. These other things have always, always been there. I mean, domestic competition, every year domestic competition um, does, does, does go up. Um, I want to say a word about, about domestic competition, actually. Elsewhere in the, in the survey, um, we asked specifically about, about domestic competition, and 70% um, um, of our companies say that they actually do have a lead vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis their domestic competitors in both product quality and technology. 70% um, say their domestic competitors are faster to market. And I really want to emphasize this point because, you know, in the, I mean, the trade war has so many different aspects to it, but one aspect it really doesn't get enough attention, and that's the fact that the United States needs to compete. We do need to up our game uh, across the board, and I think you're going to be hearing more about that from our panel. Um, the, the two things when we have visitors from outside, um, outside China and come to, come to China, the two, two reactions that they generally have, obviously one is the, the volume, right? China, big, you know, we, we, we know that. But what, what really surprises people is that China is fast. They are extremely fast to market, they're fast to make adjustments, they're fast to, to adopt digital technologies. That's an issue. That's an issue across the board for uh, multinational companies, American companies doing business over there as we compete and as we compete for talent. So talent, you're going to see, is, is, is one of the number one issues that American companies face is, is the challenge of, of recruiting and retaining local talent. And the speed with which your companies make, make decisions is a big part of that issue. The American multinationals are famous for um, 
identifying situation in the local market, then they, the, the decision goes up to the local, local CEO, and then the decision goes back to headquarters, sits on a desk for three days, and then comes back with more questions, and the opportunity is gone. Local, local, local competitors just move so much faster than we do. Regulatory hindrances. Um, overall good news. This, this environment continues to improve. Um, and this is, this is um, I mean, a lot of these are things that we have um, been complaining about for many years, especially the lack of IPR protection and enforcement. And again, it's, it's, it's a situation that has, has been steadily improving over the years. Um, IPR protection, um, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things, it's a little bit like, like eating chocolate. You know, you, you never have enough. So, so you, you shouldn't ever expect American companies to say, oh, IP enforcement, we're done. Yeah, well, it's all being, being handled um, perfectly and we don't think that's an issue. It is an issue. But it's not the number one issue. And it's an issue that's been steadily getting better over time, not worse. Moreover, um, looking at our survey results, we don't have the capability, we only have the capability of surveying our own members. We don't have the capability of surveying all of, surveying all of China and finding out what other domestic companies think about IPR uh, protection. But anecdotally, we hear this from our domestic competitors as well, is that um, yes, we'd like more uh, transparency, more consistency in terms of IP, IP uh, protection. Um, let's see. So, again, domestic competition. Um, domestic competition is is has always been an issue, but and most of our companies they look at competition per se is not a bad thing. It's um, it actually just it just makes us all better. Um, the issues are going to be around unfair competition, and that's been the issue in, um, having to do with the trade war. Um, regulatory hindrances um, overall, there are some sectoral differences. Um, this just gives you the overall picture of what our members have said, but sector by sector, um, issues around licensing, for example, um, that's going to be a bit more prevalent in the banking and finance sectors. Uh, procurement um, is, is procurement and sort of unfair practices within, a, within the procurement world. That's impacted more in real estate and uh, real estate and construction. Um, IP matters generally, as you'd expect, chemicals and pharma companies tend to list that higher in terms of, of issues going forward. Operational challenges, um, again, signs of progress. This is a picture that's been steadily improving. Um, one uh, part that I just want to point out on internet restrictions, that looks like a big drop. And I would caution people not to interpret that as uh, the idea that internet restrictions aren't a problem anymore um, or, 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 or that, that the China has, has released their, their restrictions on the internet. No, that, that, that's not the case. Uh, VPNs are still required in order to, to access um, websites that are, that, are, that are not hosted within China. I think that has not changed. 
The other thing to, to note, um, China does actually pinch the overseas cable that, um, so in other words, some, some websites are blocked outright, so Facebook, Twitter would go into that category, but virtually all uh, websites that are not hosted within China are much slower to access. And this is a, this is a big issue. Um, and it's, uh, again, there's sectoral differences in terms of, of uh, who feels this more. It tends to be the services companies, uh, consultants, um, banking, finance, uh, those, those sectors uh, feel this pinch much more than, say, the manufacturing companies. A couple of other things to note around internet restrictions is, again, we, we see increasing localization of management, and so clearly, you know, a, your foreign manager is going to feel the pain here more than, um, than a, a local person who's simply found more ways around um, uh, the, the internet restrictions, but for example, by using Baidu instead of Google, things like that. Uh, let's see. Internet opportunities. Opportunities um, again on the macro level. I would say consumption, uh, the consumer story, and the growing middle class, 400 million consumers that are that are getting steadily more wealthy. This presents uh, great opportunities um, for our companies, and so the, the the overall consumer story is 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 still uh, quite strong. So you can see there. 59% uh, see that as, uh, as, as the driver for, for growth. Um, and again, uh, removal or reduction of the tariffs. It's, it's gotten everybody's attention. Everybody wants to see uh, the trade war ended as soon as possible. So that's, um, that is a quick picture of the survey. The entire survey is, um, is, is quite, quite large. It's over 50 questions. It's, um, I'd encourage you to get, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if we're handing out physical copies today, but it's certainly available on our website. Um, but these are the overall takeaways. Um, you know, the survey results are mixed, it, it, it always is. But um, overall performance is, is basically strong. The, the, the issue is really about the view towards the future. Um, and investment is certainly a reflection of that. The regulatory environment Im improving, so that's that's some of the good news. Um, that's some of the good news around the overall survey results. So with that, I'm going to pause and I'm going to head ba head hand back to, to Scott, and I think we're going to go on to the next phase. But I encourage you, us to have a, a productive conversation uh, about the results or and what uh, what the MCHAM Shanghai members are are seeing on the ground. Thank you so much for your attention. Kerr, thank you so much. Uh, terrific um, presentation, um, very clear results, uh, places where there's been some continuity and some change in um, the, the climate, um, and, and some, some big themes came out uh, from, from the results, so really appreciate 
that and also, you know, popping a few uh, myth, mythical bubbles. Uh, um, occasionally we need those popped in Washington, so uh, you've already achieved a, a lot of progress uh, just in the first few minutes of, of presenting the results. Uh, let me now introduce uh, the others who have joined us on stage and, and get into the, the conversation. Um, to my immediate right is uh, uh, Qiang Lu, who is the uh, Divisional Vice President for Abbott Laboratories uh, in China. Uh, he's Vice President of Global Government Affairs for Abbott uh, and leads their North Asia Regional Government Affairs team. Uh, he joined Abbott in 2014, uh, and Abbott in China um, helps uh, provide nutritional products, medical devices, diagnostics, uh, as well as works with other established pharmaceutical firms in China. Prior to joining Abbott, uh, Chiang was Corporate Affairs Director at Mars Wrigley. Uh, he was born in Beijing, holds a bachelor's degree from the 4th Military Medical University of China. I believe the first graduate of the 4th Military Medical Unit University to speak here at CSIS. Uh, and he holds an MBA from INSEAD and Tsinghua. Uh, he was the Vice Chairman of the China Oral Health Foundation in 20 from 2012 to 2014. To his right, in the middle, is Pilar Dieter, who is a senior partner at YCP Solidance Limited. Uh, and she's based in their Shanghai office. Uh, Pilar has served B2B clients across a number of industries for many years and has been a frequent speaker on topics related to business model redesign and optimization across Asia. And so this is a high time, a great opportunity for her. This is everything that's occurring that Kerr just described uh, means that Pilar is at the center of everything. She holds an MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and received her BA in political science and public policy uh, from uh, University of California, Lee Berkeley? LA. LA, UCLA, okay. All right, and then uh, to her right is Don Williams, who is the managing partner and chief representative of Shepard Mullen Richter and Hampton uh, a law firm and in their head of their Shanghai office. Um, he has a broad range of experience uh, with general corporate and transactional matters in both China and the United States, including in private equity, venture capital, financing, mergers and acquisitions, and public offerings. He's also co-chair of the legal committee of AmCham Shanghai from 2010 to 2016 and remains a vice chair today. His BA from Stanford and JD from a school up in the Northeast of the United States called Harvard. So we have a great group of folks uh, with us. Uh, actually, let me, I want to pick up on one thing, Kurt, you said, and then I want to turn to the rest of the panels because just I wanted to uh, ask uh, from the survey you gave. And I just want to, if I could play devil's advocate for just a second, that's my specialty. Um, and I, you know, obviously the the trade war is is hurting uh, directly, uh, and it's causing a lot of adjustments in in business plans and operations, which we'll get into in a second. But I, I wonder if if there's another way to read some of the re some of the results from some of the survey. Uh, and again, we'll we'll ask about this specifically. So the first thing is on the problem side, the challenge side. You notice the number one of the big challenges that companies are facing is the slowdown in the Chinese economy. And you mentioned competition. And I wonder, is, that sl is the slowdown an alternative to way to say the China model is inefficient 
and creates the volatility in the Chinese economy, which is a drag for everybody. That's sort of the first half, which maybe gets to the concerns that some folks have in Washington about uh, China. And the second, you mentioned that there's been improvement with regard to regulatory hindrances and operational challenges. Sort of uh, recently, you, you cautioned us to not read too much into the internet numbers, but everywhere else it looked like a small improvement. Um, maybe the tariffs are working. So question on the challenge side, is, is it perhaps maybe a similar reading of the challenges just sort of described differently uh, from the survey and what folks hear? hear? And then maybe, maybe the tariffs are generating some positive returns in terms of the improvement of how companies are feeling uh, on the ground. I just wanted to throw that out there to, as maybe an alternative and then we'll get into the more details. Sure, happy to address that. Um, yeah, that is a devil's advocate position. Um, on the GDP growth numbers, I mean, is it an indication of efficiency? I, I would say it's probably more, you probably have to have an, ask an economist about this, but it's, it's probably more to do with maturing of, of the economy itself. I mean, they, they do have their issues uh, within the economy, but it, I, I think it would be a mistake to say, and this relates to the political discussion that we're having, is. I think it'd be a mistake to say it's an indictment of their model. Like just because they've gone from 6.2% GDP growth to 5.8, oh, the state-led the state -led model obviously isn't working. No, I think, I think that would be a misinterpretation of the facts. I, and, and, and more importantly, I think it would be a misinterpretation of the domestic politics within China. In other words, um, there is a lot of discussion about the Chinese system and, and whether, to, to what degree the trade negotiators have been, have been um, on the U U.S. side is, is asking for fundamental changes in the system, meaning this, the, the, the subsidies, the SOEs, things like this. The reality on the ground is that China believes in their system, it's, they, and they believe that it's worked for them for a long period of time. So to get them to fundamentally change their, their, their economic system and certainly the, 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 the political system, it's just not gonna happen. Um, so if, if that's gonna be core to the, to the, to the deal we're trying to get, that, that's, that's gonna be problematic. Um, so your second question was around... Are the tariffs working? Oh, are the tariffs working? Uh, um, that's hard to that's hard to say. I mean, it's it'd be hard to draw a direct line between that. I I, I think this is a lot, much longer term trend towards again China China maturing, uh, getting a lot better at at providing transparency. And and again, I, you know, I think um, I mean I've been working in China for quite a long time, and uh, to my conversations with my Chinese friends, um, uh, and many of them are competitors. My senses that are. Our, our views slash complaints about China have actually been converging. So in other words, the, the same things that we complain about, the domestic companies actually complain about the same thing. Again, you know, transparency in the regulatory environment, IP protection, inter, even the internet. Um, I have my Chinese friends say, yeah, it's, keep, keep it up. Please, please keep making noise about that because we, we can't make noise about it, but you can, and it drives us crazy too. Terrific. Uh, very helpful. Uh, and your last point is, is why 
I've been suggesting for a long time, although I know it would be hard to implement, to have the surveys that the AmCHAMs carry out also include a lot of the domestic companies, because I think then you'd, you'd, you'd then have the data to, sh to show the convergence that these aren't just multinational concerns, but business as a whole. All right, uh, you brought a, a great team with you. Uh, so let, let's turn to, 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 to them. And I ask just the f one question, the same question to each of you to begin. Um, because you come from Shanghai, you do business every day, I think it would be really helpful just for this audience to hear a little bit about what your businesses are focused on and whether the results in the survey are reflected in your personal experiences of either the companies, your company, the companies that you interact with, what you see, or whether uh, there's something different, more challenging, more positive that comes out of your daily experiences. I think that'll provide some sort of empirical foundation for a substantive question where we go deeper into some of the results uh, that Kerr uh, elaborated. Why don't we uh, start with uh, uh, Lou, then Pilar, and then Don, if we could. Okay, thank you, Scott. Um, I come from Abbott. I'm running Abbott Government Affairs in China and also the region. So Abbott is a healthcare company we established 131 years ago in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, we used to be a pharmaceutical company uh, until 2013, and the company split to two companies. One is Abbott, one is Abbott V. So now we are um, a very diversified uh, company. We, uh, we have a full business division, like uh, nutrition, medical device, diagnostic and established uh, pharmaceutical, that's mainly in the off-patent drug. Uh, in China, we are almost two billion US dollar business. Um, I can only speak the health care industry and my companies, um, yeah, just like the survey show, we are doing well in China. Um, so um, still remain the double-digit growth so if you have interest, you can look at our annual report. So China is obviously a hot topic uh, in our quarter call and also the annual call. Um, we have a full factory in Shanghai and Zhejiang and uh, two R&D center and one innovation center in Shanghai. So that's why you can see um, we're headquartered in Shanghai. So um, that's our company's outlook. Uh, come back to your question, Scott, about the uh, economic slowdown. Um, in my industry, I still see very strong domestic demand. You know, our contract still coming from the hospitals, from the clinics. Uh, um, from the daily life, you know, I commute between Beijing and Shanghai every week. The flight is still occu fully occupied. It's not easy to book a ticket um, if you want to just go the same day. So. That's always not easy to find a ticket. So I see still very strong business activities there. Um, during the lunch and the dinner, the restaurants still full of the young people. <laughs> so I can see that, yeah, this is a big machine. If even, even we say that's a slowdown, that's the effect of the number, that still take time to see. Mm -hmm. That's my observation. Thank, Thank you. you. 
So I run a strategy advisory firm, and our headquarters are actually Hong Kong, and we operate in 14 countries across Asia Pacific. So when we come around to the conversation, and there's a lot to unpack in this survey, but when we come along to the conversation about where are people going, are they truly packing up and going to Southeast Asia, India, Middle East, where, um, I'll be happy to share some insights with you on that point. The clients I serve are probably 40% American, probably another 30 to 40% European, and the remainder are predominantly Japanese with a small subset of some Asian um, operators. Not a single Chinese company is a client of ours. Now, when I look at the clients that I serve, predominantly B2B industries, a lot of manufacturing, industrial, and biotech and healthcare. These companies would easily argue, and my clients, predominantly the US ones, would say, is the economic slowdown happening and impacting us? Absolutely. I would say that they're echoing a lot of what you're seeing in the survey here. But I would also say let's be cautious with this reflection because this has been a deceleration in the growth of this economy for over 10 years. We can't just take a snapshot of one year and think that that's the only reality. So my clients, those that have been wise to this decades ago, have actually put together some of their plans of what are our risk contingencies, what are some of the um, plans we have in place to realize that we are going to drop in 2010 from a double-digit GDP to what is inevitably going to be a 5% growth rate somewhere around 2019. And these types of initiatives that they take on in order to remain competitive are much more in line with the innovation that you see happening around them in China business model innovation, figuring out new technology, investing in their own R&D in China for the China market. So they're trying to get smart and savvy in the region that they're playing in, in the region that they're trying to grow in. Because China is easily their number two, number three, and in some cases even their number one market economy. So I think we want to try to keep everything in context when we talk GDP, economic slowdown, growth rates. These are all things that have to be taken with a grain of salt. So I'm a lawyer who um, I've operated in the technology sector. I represent um, both U.S. technology companies and Chinese technology companies in China. For purposes of answering Scott's question, I'll focus on the American companies. And I spoke with many of my clients, uh, you know, in preparation for this panel. I, I think does the the survey reflect um, accurately the reality of my clients? I, I think yes. The answer is yes. We our, my clients do continue to see gradual improvements in the IP environment in China, um, IP protection, um, gradually improving, um, uh, you know, so um, forced technology transfer, gradually decreasing. Um, we, we've seen a repeal of some regulations early this year that essentially forced technology transfer. Those are now off the books. That was a step the Chinese government took. Um, so we are seeing these gradual improvements in the IP environment. We're, we're seeing um, gradual improvements in the regulatory environment more generally. Um, uh, I, I, I think um, we do see a slowdown in the tech sector. It's not a contraction by any means. I would say it's mostly cyclical. Um, that, that it's the first real slowdown in the tech sector that I've seen, and I've been in China since 2006. Even in 2008, um, there wasn't much of a slowdown in that sector in particular. And that was partly probably because the government um, implemented a massive uh, stimulus. Um, which it has not done uh, more recently in response to the current issues. Um, it's sort of refrained from massive, there have been some tax cuts and other measures, but no massive stimulus. But in any event, the tech 
slowdown I see is largely cyclical. Um, it's, I think, mostly disconnected from the trade dispute, although uh, the uncertainty um, has undoubtedly affected uh, the sector, and it hasn't been helpful, but I don't think it's the major cause of, of uh, the slowdown. Um, all very helpful uh, reflections on where you sit relative to the survey. Let me ask about uh, China from another perspective. Um, just um, mentioned number two was competition. Um, and so you're advising firms or representing firms that face a lot of competition from Chinese. Where are the Chinese excelling? Uh, you mentioned speed. In addition to speed, uh, technological innovations, uh, you know, technologies fit for the market. Um, where are the Chinese getting better? Where do we need to get better in addition to getting faster, as, as Kerr said? Yeah, so working in the tech sector, and I, I, I do a lot of work for Alibaba on the, on the Chinese side and others, um, I would say the Chinese excel in business model innovation. So we may, in this country, still have a lead in, in basic um, hardcore scientific research. Um, by the way, I'm not sure that lead is uh, sort of unchallengeable, and I know it isn't, um, but we probably still have a lead in those areas. But in terms of business model innovation, coming up with new ways to do things, um, the Chinese are absolutely excel in that. So, so you know, I think everyone knows um, mobile payments, um, you know, sh sort of um, buying things via chat, um, um, just the WeChat platform, uh, uh, but, but there are other areas too, facial recognition software. Uh, there, there, are, there are lots of areas where, where the Chinese are the world leaders. And I, I would echo Kerr's comments. Um, this country needs to compete. Um, it's not all a question of the Chinese stealing our stuff, and that's how they've done well. It's really, if you go there and you work with their companies in the tech sector, you, you understand. And it's certainly speed is one of the, one of the, the challenges American companies face, but, but the um, the new ways of doing things and how quickly the Chinese companies innovate in, in the business model side is, is remarkable. And, and um, people in this country should, should not take for granted uh, the, the lead in innovation. Um, my own view is this country needs to invest more in education, in infrastructure, in, in, research, in basic research. I'm not saying we want to target specific sectors, maybe that's not who we are, um, but uh, we need to compete with that level of business model innovation, the level of innovation that's coming out of China, to me is the real story, not the IP theft. IP theft is there, it is an issue, we need to address it, but the real story is how fast they innovate there. Coming from a lawyer that's saying something, because you could have a lot of cases if you wanted, if you just focused on the IP theft. Chiang and, and Pilar, what are, what are the type of innovations you see in, in biotech, nutrition, healthcare, maybe some of the other sectors that you all work with? Yeah, in my um, industry, the mainly the life science and medical device, we still see in China, the Chinese competitor is still relatively small and our technology and still have the gap with them. They still take time to catch up. So we are, as the U.S. company, we are mainly compete with uh, companies uh, from other countries like Europe and Japan. Um, so, yeah, we encourage the local uh, industry can be uh, players can be catch up. So, but uh, the competition still not between the Chinese and uh, and us. 
I would say from the manufacturing side, you know, think about companies like Timken, Johnson Controls, Caterpillar. These guys are, to win in business, they're looking to increase market share profitably. And I would have to echo the business model discussion from Don. The, when I go and visit companies that are competing with my clients, Chinese companies, Chinese distributors, the one word I walk away with after I go and visit their facilities is scrappy. These guys are entrepreneurs beyond any kind of recognition. And when they are hungry and eager to do business, and I'm talking about Chinese operators who are running businesses, granted, probably at a distributor or dealer level, they are doing so with an eye for how can I how can I do this more effectively? How can I be more aggressive? How can I push more of my product into the marketplace and beat out the competition, whether they're American, German, or Japanese? And what you find with that is they start to leverage things and force my American clients to start looking this way too, leverage things like mobile payments, leverage things like new ways of contracting and doing business in a faster way. And I think this is one of the um, deficits that some U.S. companies are going in there with is they just aren't thinking in that manner. They're not as hungry, perhaps. And so we're starting to see a lot more on that innovation side, I would say, on the business model framework. All right. I've got one more question, then we're going to throw it open to the audience uh, and get their feedback and, and questions. Um, let me start with Kerr, but then I'll ad adapt. Um, so if, if you were the president of the Euro Chamber Shanghai or the Japanese Chamber Shanghai or Korean or others, would you be popping champagne right now and thinking the trade war has done a lot to uh, slow down your American competitors and that you're benefiting? Or is it tariffs and all the talk basically been a pall on everyone because they're all interconnected? And then for your colleagues, just asking from a similar light, uh, what does it look like vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the other multinationals that you are doing business with or competing or advising? Uh, is it, would, would, does the China story look different from their perspective as opposed from an American perspective? So we start with Kerr and then come down the line. Sure. We, we talk uh, with our European counterparts um, and Japanese counterparts uh, fairly often. And, and yeah, the, the answer to your question is both. Um, on the one hand, yeah, they're laughing their heads off. They're, they're getting, um, they are, their companies are definitely getting the benefit um, I mean, look at wine, right? I mean, I'm from California. I love California wine, um, but, but, you know, it's not that much different from French wine, right? I mean, so if you're sitting in China and your California wine has just gone up by 25%, French wine or Australian wine or New Zealand wine tastes pretty good. So, so yeah, we're definitely losing market share to, to our European um, uh, competitors for sure. I wouldn't say, though, that they're popping champagne because they, they do feel the other way, too. They don't like tension. They don't like instability. They don't like uncertainty. And yeah, when, the, when, the two, when these two giants do battle, uh, it's not a good thing for anyone. So I do think that they would, they would like to, to see an end to this. Um, and this is one of the baffling things that we heard on, more on the administration side. Um, and it's, it's this idea that we're doing, we're applying tariffs unilaterally. That's, that's really problematic. Um, and some of the questions that we've had on the Hill and in the administration is like, oh yeah, why don't, 
why don't the Germans just impose tariffs just like we are? If they, if they feel the same way about China, and you know, this effort has to be coordinated. It just, it's, not, uh, it's not something that can just happen out of thin air. So, so we've had some hmm, challenging conversations um, with the administration about that particular point. Yes, I think um, I would echo Kerr's comments. I mean, the Europeans, the Japanese are definitely benefiting from, from uh, the American companies' issues with, with the tariffs and the Chinese retaliatory tariffs. Um, I, I think they do share, I mean, the EU chamber, the Jap Japanese chamber, they certainly share um, some of the U.S. concerns about the Chinese environment, although, as noted, we, we see the IP environment gradually improving, as it has been for a while now. We see, we see gradual improvement. Um, um, and, and, but, but the environments are still not perfect by any means, and the Europeans and the Japanese, they share those, the concerns we have. Um, I, I, I certainly feel like we would be much stronger if we were acting together with them instead of, instead of trying to do this on our own and, and letting them benefit, basically, while we're fighting a battle that, in, in many respects, the battle benefits them more than it does us, to the extent there are changes. I mean, if you look at new licenses being handed out in key sectors and things, a lot of them are going to the Europeans um, or the Japanese. They're not going to the Americans. This is not the time. There are a few, but this is really not the time to reward American behavior, I think, from the Chinese perspective. So, so um, you're not seeing, you're not seeing, um, you know, but China does want to show that it's, it's opening, it's opening up, and maybe some of that is in response to U.S. pressure, but uh, the beneficiaries are more the Europeans and the Japanese than the Americans. At the risk of beating a dead horse here, um, I would share, you know, industrial companies once again, uh, serving infrastructure development, oil and gas, mining, a couple of our clients, and we probably have about 12 companies in the portfolio that are involved in industrial pumps of all types of sorts and sizes. Some of my clients are American, some are European. Was in a European client's office just three weeks ago. And I asked him candidly, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to be going to American Chamber of Commerce, door knock, I'm going to be speaking at CSIS, anything you'd like to share? And he said, no. I said, well, how's, how's the trade war going for you? And he said, after looking around the room a few times, making sure there was nobody really recording anything, <laughs> and he goes under his breath, go Trump, go. So he is increasing his market share. He is beating out competition. The second illustration I would share with you is another client of mine, California-based medical device company. They're producing equipment for heart valves, so implants that are going to be used in surgical operations. And they have a technology that they've had in the queue to be licensed and approved in China for over four years. And licensing in China in the medical device space can be cumbersome, take a long time, but it's, it's that it is the way it is. They have been delayed approval up until the point where regulation has permitted this kind of technology to be used in the operation labs. Operation labs open up, regulation permits this now. However, even though they were first in the queue to be approved, there's other competitors that have caught up in the technology development, not only Chinese, mind you, who have all of a sudden somehow got the green light to get their licenses approved first. So again, are we being um, slapped on the wrist as American businesses because of the behavior that we're exuding here in Washington? I think that's a question for some people on the Hill, but I would say my clients would probably say from the American side, it feels that way. Yeah, just make a quick as up, you know, as I said before, uh, if I lost, if we lost the, um, 
business in China, we are not, not lost to the Chinese companies. We are lost to the companies in, from other countries. So uh, yeah, these years, we already say, um, the competitors already say, you know, the medical device not affected by tariff yet. But uh, think about it, what if the tariff effective to medical device, so spare parts going to be extra tariffs, that's extra cost to the clients. So this kind of a mood already spread in the customers. So uh, we'll deal with that. All right, uh, we have about 20 minutes left and we've got a very smart, bright audience. Uh, love your feedback, questions, comments. Uh, again, since we're online, we have microphones uh, that will come if you'd wait for the microphone and identify yourself and your organization. And we're going to start right here on this fourth row in the middle, the gentleman with his hand up. Yes, please wait. For, the microphone's coming your way. Yeah, uh, <coughs> Uwe Dadush with the Policy Center for the New South. Two questions. Could you, any of you comment on the joint venture requirements, which apparently are a big issue? And the second is, uh, I don't understand. Uh, the companies in China are not supporting the tariffs. The American importers from China are very badly hurt by the tariffs. And the exporters from the United States to China, including the farmers, are hurt by the tariffs. Where is the support for the tariffs coming from? I think there's an address on Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> Scott, you want me to make a comment about uh, JVs? Or? Uh, sure. And um, maybe you give people a little bit of context about what the regulations are and then what the changes have been. Yeah, I mean, the big picture is, I mean, we've almost come full circle um, in terms of, you know, in the early days, um, in the early days in China, everything was, was a joint venture and that was really forced. Um, we've actually come full circle. I mean, it's sector by sector and I'll let the, the lawyers, you know, comment on some of the regulations and things. But we're actually seeing um, a, a, an increasing trend toward joint ventures, voluntary joint ventures in, in many sectors where, where American companies are, are finding that, um, you know, that the environment is, it's a challenging environment. It's difficult to compete against, um, against domestic companies. And so in some instances, American companies have chosen to, to go back to a joint venture or, um, or simply license technology or, or, or take, just take an equity position. I think Uber and the DD situation was a case in point where Uber went into the market and um, you know, we could argue they made certain tactical mistakes, but the net net is they, they spent billions in the market and, and realized that, that the local competition um, uh, was, was, was too severe. And so what they did is they swapped, um, they swapped their ownership of a wholly owned wholly owned venture and they swap that for an equity stake in their local competitor. And so, so it's an alternative structure. I don't think there's anything particularly sinister about that. Um, I think it's a, it's a realistic view that, um, look, I mean, in, in the 1980s when I first went to China, I mean, China just didn't have any of those capabilities. So American companies going in, they, you know, selling products and 
and whatnot. Um, today is a very different situation, and we need to wake up to that, that, that China is, is simply a formidable competitor. That doesn't mean it's an enemy. That means it's a competitor. Those are two very different things. Yeah, in terms of the joint ventures, I'd, I'd echo what, um, what, what Kerr just said. I think, I, I, so historically, um, there, there are, and, and to this day, actually, there are a number of sectors, but there were more in the past, where if you were a foreign company and you wanted to participate in the Chinese market, you had to invest through a joint venture. And that sort of implicitly or explicitly sometimes meant transferring technology to the joint venture, which is one of the kind of longstanding complaints of the American business community. Um, I think auto, uh, cars, automobiles was the classic example. Um, I, I, would say, I would say that, I, I would group these in three categories though. Um, so, so, so financial services joint venture restrictions are, 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 I believe, already phased out or being phased out now. So the, the previously, you know, you couldn't own 100% of a financial services entity now. If, if, as a foreign company, now you can. Um, so that, those restrictions are, are eased. Um, uh, autos, I believe the plan it remains to phase those out over time. Um, and there are other sectors though like cloud computing which there's no indication that, that those restrictions or, or other, other um, internet related sectors where there's no indication that those restrictions will be uh, removed. Um, and and uh, so, so I think in the tech sector th th those requirements if you want to do business in now, there, may, there may be end runs around those requirements in, in some sectors. I mean, you, probably, you may have heard of, if in the tech sector, you may have heard of the VIE structure, and there, there may be end runs around joint ventures, but, um, but those have regulatory risk associated with them. But in any event, in the tech sector, most, there, there's still a number of sectors where, like cloud computing where you still have to do a joint venture, and those probably won't go away. I would say we can't underestimate the value of what's happening with the shift between this joint venture requirement and the, the relaxation of that regulation. It's very important that U.S. companies have had the opportunity to shift into a WUFI model at the get-go. What I'm going to comment on, though, is who thought these tariffs were a good idea in the first place? Um, I've been living in Shanghai since 2005. And I've been a proud member of AmCham for pretty much the entire time. And I can tell you that through those years, the delegations of people from Capitol Hill that would come into the chamber would constantly hear from American businesses, it's not a level playing field. We need support. We want some help. You know, let's make regulations transparent, reciprocity, all the buzzwords. And to be perfectly fair, there hadn't been a lot of action taken that was improving that situation. So American businesses basically took it upon themselves to act in the diplomatic way of saying, we're going to make this work. We're going to realize there's some nuances to operating here. We'll deal with it, but we are here because we believe in the China market opportunity. So the tariffs that we have in place today are, in my opinion, after these last 48 hours on the Hill, a, a bit of let's try to address, we keep using the term, we're, we're using a bludgeon to address something that should have used a scalpel. And it's just become a very overreaching attempt with the plan, with all the lists that have been coming out to kind of reverse some of it, thinking that that's the way to be more surgical. So it's created the uncertainty in the marketplace, which is the number one worst thing for businesses. And it's, it's also just caused a lot of angst overall.
Hi, Owen Churchill with the um, South China Morning Post. Um, over the past four or five months, there seemed to have been a few moments where we were quite close to a, to a deal or some substantial progress. You know, in May, we were um, apparently close to finalizing something, and then there was some optimism after the G20 that we'd be closing the gap. Um, Chinese negotiators are coming to Washington in a couple of weeks, and there seems to be some optimism about that. And Trump said, I think half an hour ago or so, he said, there might be a deal sooner than you think. Um, so I just wondered whether the panel had any optimism about that, um, those high-level negotiations in the next couple of weeks. And then secondly, um, what you're doing, <coughs> excuse me, what you're doing to prepare should those negotiations fail to make progress or um, even, you know, fall apart um, if there's an escalation in, in the tension there um, and, we, and we don't see another deal in the immediate future, even not before the, uh, the 2020 election. Thanks. I guess that's a question for me. Um, fundamentally, yeah, the, the the back and forth and tit for tat has been has been really problematic, and and we've just been suffering from the whipsaw, you know, in terms of like as you said, we thought we were very close to a deal. We were back, we were here actually in May, and talking about uh, as the negotiators were getting closer and closer to the deal, and everybody was asking us about how this deal is going to look and how it's going to get implemented. There was no question that it, it was going to happen, and then all of a sudden the, the walk away. So it's been it's been a challenging time for sure. Um, no, I'm, I'm fundamentally optimistic that a deal will get done. Um, the question is when and what it's going to look like. Will it be in parts or in a whole? Those kinds of things. But especially after the discussions on the Hill, um, I, I'm actually more encouraged um, on, on both sides. I mean, on the American business community side, we're very clear. We, we, we need a deal. We are not in a position to abandon this market. Full stop. That's that is the position of the American business community. I can say with complete confidence that that's our that's our position. On the Hill, um, I actually heard that more or less echoed. Um, our, if I could say um, one word that characterizes the conversations, it was constructive. We were prepared, mentally prepared for. Um, in fact, we had we had people come to us uh, to help us prepare for these discussions, and they said, "Look, look Kerr." Every conversation you start on the Hill has to start with the sentence, I also hate China. This is what we want. Otherwise, they're just not going to listen to you. I, I actually found that wasn't true. Um, I, I, was, I was encouraged. Um, both the R's and the D's uh, were, were constructive. Um, they were um, you know, questioning uh, in terms of um, how to go forward. but. But there is a, a commitment to get some kind of deal and some kind of relationship for China. I think that, that, is, that is clear. It's equally clear that they were firm on, again, R's and D's are both firm that something does need to change uh, in terms of the relationship. And again, we would, we would support that. The question really is the tactics that we're using going forward. Is this an effective approach? Are we getting there? Are we closer to a deal? Are the tariffs working, or are they just are they just creating mutual destruction? I don't know if any of you want to want to comment on that as well. Um, I was going to maybe speak to the escalation of tensions point. If it, um, I think um, in terms of do we have do do my clients have a plan? If there's I, I think 
I think my clients fear an escalation of tensions and don't really have a, a true plan B. I think if you look at, if you look at what's happened so far in China, um, you, you have not really seen, um, other than perhaps after the, the Huawei ban, uh, maybe in a couple of weeks after that, you've not really seen an outpouring of anti-American sentiment. But many of my clients fear that, especially more consumer-facing, that they may be subject to boycotts or other, other action if, um, if, uh, you know, if things really deteriorate significantly. And they're, you know, so far, I would, my, my, my own sense is, if anything, the government has been sort of damping down. I mean, Chinese consumers tend to be fairly nationalistic and, and proud of China and, and maybe don't understand why the U.S. is taking various actions. And so far, if anything, I feel my, my own sort of informal view is, and from talking to others, is, is the government has been damping down the anti-American sentiment. Um, but if they choose not to do that if, if tensions escalate, or worse, they choose to sort of un you know, fully unleash or even exacerbate the, the sentiment online. Um, I, I think uh, American companies and brands could suffer significant damage uh, because, because um, and it may take a very long time to reverse that damage. So my clients fear escalation of tensions. Take a couple questions together and as as, as a wrap up. Uh, so we're gonna one, two, uh, three over there. Hi, uh, Brett Fortin with Inside U.S. Trade. Is there getting to be a a, a certain amount of exhaustion from businesses with the tariffs? Um, and on if there is a deal that's struck, um, you know the. the key part of it has, of the discussion so far has been about how that deal would be enforced. Um, would that be reliant on um, your, your clients and, and companies in China reporting back to the U.S. that um, you know, China is living up to uh, the provisions in this deal or China is not living up to the provisions? And if the alternative is more tariffs, would companies be inclined to do that? Or will this deal not really be enforceable? Okay, so I got one there, right behind you. Hi, thanks, Scott, and uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, taking the time to share your insights. My name is Brandon from FAO Global, and um, we're an intelligence consulting company. And we recently were approached by U.S. and Chinese asset management com companies interested in pursuing JV partnerships. So they want us to facilitate it. My question is to, if you have any insights on how is the overall um, I guess, climate for setting up these type of funds? Are they seeking to be, um, are companies on your end in Shanghai, are they looking to do joint ventures? Are people seeking to establish separate funds? Again, if you have any insights into this, we'd appreciate it. Okay, we're gonna go over here. Oh, right there. Hi, uh, John Corrigan, Wall Street Journal. Uh, a few weeks ago, President Trump hereby ordered U.S. companies to consider leaving China. Uh, can I get your reaction to, from your clients and your companies to that directive from Mr. Trump? Terrific. Okay. I think that's a, a good set of questions to, you can take which ones you'd like, the easy ones, actually, they're, but they're all really good. So uh, as I told you, we have gr uh, great groups here that come. Um, maybe we'll start, why don't we start down with uh, Chiang and then work this way and we'll, we'll end where we began with Kerr. Oh, I, I think I can only um, answer the third one to you is, um, yeah, we heard about that, but uh, we're not uh, really have any plan to 
people out because um, my view is um, these two countries is too close. I mean, if you're talking about my industry, uh, the Chinese people really need our technology, our product, our innovation. So uh, we'll continually supply that. Um, we are globally manufacturing, uh, not only in the U.S. So as I said before, we are fine in China. So yeah, um, we don't have any plan to review um, current circumstances. Uh, any need, we need to pull out. I'll touch on the JV conversation. Um, I'd say that I still have a significant amount of clients who are looking to enter in the Chinese market doing so with the JV model in mind. Uh, I would say, however, in one case, again, a, a biotech company, medical device manufacturer, they are looking at a licensing agreement instead. And when I, I presented them with alternatives, I said, you know, here we are looking at the array of ways in which you can go in, you can start doing some clinical trials doing um, through partnerships, you can do it through a joint venture. They said, why does everybody turn to JV as an answer in China? And he said, that's not the business that we run. We don't like JVs. None of my clients like JVs for the record. Um, you know, there, if there is a JV model to be played, it's always guarantee me that there is a line of sight to full outright ownership. On the point about get out of China, get out of China. Um, I would say, you know, the divestiture of investment, which actually isn't necessarily a complete extraction, is as I alluded earlier, looking into other Asian markets. Um, the the people that are in China, especially the large multinationals, they're there for the local market and the region. Uh, whether they are trying to sell just you know, into the China market or try to participate in the economy that's created around Asia Pacific, the reality is they have had plans for many, many years to look into a diversification play. These are plans that they've just simply dusted off in the tariff war and tweets like that have not done nothing but accelerate the process to start moving things maybe a little bit faster than they were originally intending. So on the leaving China question, I, I, um, I, I don't think any of my American clients that I've talked to have any plans to do so. Um, I, you know, I, for, for a whole host of different reasons, but I mean, one of the main reasons is, is just the importance of the Chinese market to being globally competitive. It's very hard to operate a globally competitive business if you're not in China. It's too big, it's too important, it's moving too fast. You, you have to be there in the midst of it um, in, in order to, to to compete worldwide, and I mean, you learn from things, developments in China. Um, you you make money in China. I, I mean, there are too many reasons y y you need to be there. The the whole consumer upgrade, the the 400 million consumers that are getting wealthier every day. Um, even if the economy slows down, the consumer upgrade is not is not going away. And so, so my clients need to be there. They feel to be to be to be globally competitive. They can't they can't just leave. They can't they can't leave. It's too big uh, a market for them. They they can't afford to. Um, I think um, on the JV point, I would I would say uh, yes. We continue to see companies wanting to enter the China market. Um, I, I think the JVs remain an attractive way. I can't really speak to asset management uh, specifically, but. I would say that um, there remain, especially at the provincial level, um, if, if, you know, if you're talking to specific provinces, not at the central government level, um, you, there remain a lot of provinces that are very interested in attracting U.S. investment um, of, any, of almost any nature. Um, and, and, and so, um, you know, I, I think um, 
there is this conflict at the central government level, but if you, dig down, if you get down to the provincial level or the, you know, the sort of city level, you'll, you'll, you'll still find a very warm welcome in many sectors. Um, I guess that leaves the enforcement question to me. Um, I'll, I'll respond actually to all three of these very briefly, just to emphasize some of the things my colleagues have said. On enforcement, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's core to the, to the deal. It has to be something enforceable. Um, what, you know, the, the, the common phrase we use, you know, a lot of um, countries, not just the United States, have you know, what we call promise fatigue. I mean, we have been here before um, in terms of uh, agreements with China that, that don't get implemented. And so, yeah, that's an issue. Um, and, uh, but I think both sides uh, are looking for a lasting agreement. There is acknowledgement on that point. Um, it's a little bit difficult to talk about, but behind closed doors, the Chinese side understands that, 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 that they have a reputation that they need to repair with respect to enforcement. Um, on asset management, yeah, I would echo what, what, what Don is saying. I've, we're, we're hearing, um, quite a lot of interest specifically about asset management um, and general liberalization within the financial sector generally. So I don't have a comment about the, the, um, the JV per se, that's pretty specific, but generally speaking, and again, what Don said was, is, is correct. I mean, at the municipal and provincial level, we're, we're actually feeling probably more enthusiasm than we ever had before, you know, in terms of uh, welcoming of investment, welcoming of American companies. Um, again, the, the view from Beijing, as I mentioned earlier in my remarks, the view from Beijing is very different from it is from, from the view at the provincial level. Um, our government um, interlocutors there, they don't like the trade war any more than we do. Um, they are very businesslike. Uh, they, they're interested in investment, job creation, um, full stop. And, and they, they very much welcome American, American businesses there. Uh, last question, yeah, about the President's remarks. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, none, we, we don't um, see businesses pulling out. That did get a lot of attention. It, it contributed to, again, this whipsaw that, that, that we're feeling. Uh, American businesses in Shanghai feel very unsettled, and these kinds of remarks, frankly, are, are, are not helpful. Um, American companies um, did not line up behind that, 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 that remark and, and head for the exits. It's not because we're not patriotic or that we don't support the goal of a rebalancing of the relationship. It's simply because we looked at that and, and, and came to the conclusion that it simply wouldn't help. Again, as we've been talking about before, if, if we were to exit the China market en masse, uh, we would be replaced by European and Japanese companies the next day. So it would accomplish nothing. And that's the reason why American companies are really not in a position to, to, to exit the China market. This has been a terrific discussion. And I want to, since we've done this a few years uh, in a row now, just kind of to, to bring things uh, together, um, mentioned, you know, two years ago when we, we did this uh, event and the AmCham Shanghai brought a relatively similar message. Um, there was very little uh, 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 hospitality in Washington to that message. Uh, there was much more uh, criticism of, 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 of the delegation being too idealistic, optimistic about China, 
being willing to accept a quarter of a loaf from the Chinese, um, and uh, et cetera, and saying, you know, you're not representing American interests, but, but these, these narrow interests. And then I think what we've seen is actually the anxieties about what we've been doing here, sort of more self-introspection, doing our own self-analysis, and then watching the outcomes of the tensions, so that you come with a relatively similar message but find some empathy uh, around town, uh, particularly up on Capitol Hill, I, I think uh, uh, says something about where Washington is shifting and maybe in a direction more in line with some of the messages that you've been bringing, uh, which means that in your first year as president of AmCham, you've got a big success to take home to, to, to share uh, with, with the rest of uh, your membership. I would, uh, one point of caution um, is, is that is still, the administration is still the administration. They still have their approach. And an issue that we didn't talk uh, really much about today is questions of national security. And there's a lot of folks within the administration who aren't really managing trade policy or thinking about that, who are thinking about simply national security issues. Of course, there is a very uh, good argument then ca that can be made, uh, that's not made often enough, that more trade, more engagement properly managed leads to better security. Uh, but nevertheless, you have folks who aren't really looking at the scores that you had up here coming up with a different conclusion about what our overall policies should be. And those are the folks that I think maybe next time around will be, need to be engaged even, even further. Um, again, a terrific discussion, uh, uh, quite constructive, positive. I want to thank the audience for your contributions uh, to Chiang, uh, Pilar, Don, and Kerr. Uh, thank each of you. If we could all just give them a round of applause. Thank you.